Welcome to Channel Journeys, the podcast for channel professionals that will enable and inspire you to create your best channel journey ever. Meet and learn from channel experts who share authentic stories of their channel victories, defeats, and lessons learned along the way. Here's your host, Rob Speed, a channel chief on a never-ending quest for channel knowledge and adventure. Hello, channel pros. Welcome back to Channel Journeys. I say welcome back. It has been almost a month since my last podcast. Time's gone by pretty quickly, and uh, that's just because I have been super busy at OutSystems, a lot going on there. I had to rebuild my team, hired a channel manager out west to replace uh, one of my great guys who decided to move into a sales role and also fill the role down in Brazil. So we've got my complete team in place. I've got such an awesome channel team at OutSystems, I really feel fortunate. Anyway, welcome back to the Channel Journeys podcast. Uh, I don't know if you guys caught it last week, was Rod Baptie's channel focus event. Fantastic event, just so many great speakers. I had the great fortune of being a panelist on two of the sessions and really enjoyed that. I saw a couple of Channel Journeys podcast listeners there at the event. So that was fun. I saw you virtually anyway. And one of the speakers at Channel Focus, who actually has been speaking for many years, is a guy who knows so much about the channel and keeps giving back and so eager to share what he has learned. Taylor McDonald, you may have heard him on a prior podcast. He was on the show early on in Channel Journeys, and he's back. We're going to talk to him today. We've got an interesting topic. We're going to talk about hybrid channels. This is a topic that I I discussed in an earlier episode with Rich Blakeman, who wrote a great book about the hybrid sales channel. And he's got a slightly different take uh, in his approach in the book versus the way that Taylor is executing a hybrid channel. And this is actually a, a conversation that we're having at, at OutSystems as to the best approach. So it was really interesting for me to chat with Taylor and, and talk about it. I think you're going to find it very interesting as well if you're looking to grow a channel business, an indirect channel business. He's got a lot of great lessons learned he shares with us on this podcast. So I really found it useful. I think you will too. I hope you enjoy it as well. Are you ready for another great session with Taylor McDonald? Let's go. Hey, Taylor, good afternoon. Welcome back to Channel Journeys. Great to be back. So do you know it was episode 14 that you were on, which was over 50 episodes ago? Wow. Yeah, time flies. Well, and a lot of talented (laughs) channel people to speak with. Yeah, a lot of great channel folks. And I I feel like I've barely scratched the surface. There's still so many others that I want to talk to, but I'm really excited to have you back on the show. It was fun seeing you for lunch. uh, What was it last week? Yeah. And so we're getting back out. I've actually met with a partner since then. I've got another partner lunch tomorrow. Well, things are getting back to normal slowly, but surely. Yeah, at least for us. I know other folks around the world are, are not in that fortunate situation, but we're in much better shape here. So that's good. Well, you gave a presentation at the last channel focus, Rod Baptie's event. You've been speaking at those for a while. I have. And uh, Rod's been a great advocate for uh, perhaps uh, controversial opinions on channels. So uh, he always likes to hear um, not just the status quo, but what people are actually doing that's making a difference with partners. Yeah. And you're coming up, uh, is it next month? There's the yep. next next round. So in, in your last round, you were talking about the hybrid channel and and reconciling the needs of the direct sales force and the partner channel, which is a pretty common theme for most of us. 
that run channels. It's, it's very rare that you don't have that kind of hybrid approach. And I guess some companies go out 100% channel and we can talk about that too. So really eager to dive in with you, your approach and how you're making it work. So maybe first off, how do you define the hybrid channel? Well, when I joined uh, Intact, which was uh, a standalone company in 2010, Rob, now owned by uh, Sage, we had a very small direct sales force and they had tried a couple of times to build a channel. And I think there was an understanding at the board level that a hybrid channel, meaning a group selling direct to uh, prospects and a partner channel selling direct to, to prospects was an opportunity to go twice as fast if uh, if it was possible to A, uh, build a successful channel and B, um, to mitigate any conflicts or to, to lessen conflicts that uh, eventually happen uh, uh, between a direct and a channel uh, team. How autonomous do you think those two teams should be? And I asked because I had Rich Blakeman on the show early on and talking about his book, The Hybrid Sales Channel. And his view of hybrid is really like a hybrid car, where sometimes the you know, the, the gas engine is, or electric engine is kicking in sometimes the gas and they're working in tandem using, leveraging the strengths of either one. It's not like you have two separate cars. Do you view that as two separate channels or really they're working in tandem? Well, I, I, I think it's much more to be working in tandem. It may not be as, as a hundred percent as, as he makes out. Uh, we did a couple of things early on um, that were incredibly important. One, we shared all the resources that the direct team had with all of our channel partners. So that could be marketing resources, sales training, sales resources. We treat our partners as if they are employees or colleagues of, of Sage. So that was a big one. The second is that both groups uh, support each other in terms of uh, providing references providing case studies that might have been one on one side or the other, or uh, knowledge that um, may be specific to a, a vertical industry that's uh, held more specifically uh, via direct or channel. Um, and then the, the big one was because at that point, we, we figured that we at least held out the uh, hope that uh, we would have an IPO at some point. And so our model was that our business partners would implement somewhere between 60 and 80% of the deals that direct sold. And so um, that still holds today. So our partners obviously implement 100% of their direct of the deals they sell, and then they implement 60 to 80% of the deals that direct sell. So in any given quarter, it's somewhere between as a total 70 to 80%. And clearly that was a a way to not build a big professional services staff. Those people are hard to keep busy. They're hard to retain. They tend to move around a lot because they have very saleable skills and the like. And so so I think our belief was always that one plus one was going to equal more than two. Um, we also have enforced deal registration. And so we don't have two partners in the same deal. We don't have a partner and a direct salesperson in a deal. And so um, that means that you're almost always have sales resources focused on one deal. And so it becomes accretive as opposed to you're competing for the same deal with, with the same company, mm -hmm. which is crazy. So it sounds like you don't have a co-sell motion where like a partner registers a deal and then that partner is working the deal with one of your direct reps. Right. And we've done that to some degree occasionally, but you know, our partners get paid margin for the life of the, of the customer 
And so, A, they want to take it down on their paper, which we support, and they want to uh, build that annuity. But, you know, there's plenty of times that partners, it's probably more the other way where a partner who's doing the implementation on a direct deal is is bringing their sales skills to help the direct guy uh, close the deal. Uh, You know, again, the, the difference, and there's no right or wrong here is a direct salespeople Lots of these are young folks out of uh, college that don't have deep uh, experience in accounting software versus a partner channel that's typically done this for the last 20, 30, 40 years. So we can be a great help to our direct brethren to help them close deals. And I think one of the things very early on that was tremendously uh, helpful and smart when, when all this got launched was that the, my direct counterpart and I both worked for the CEO. And we were both we were both paid on the total of the two, not on mine or, or hers, as it, as was the case. So that was a huge plus. Is that still the case? Oh, absolutely. So you've you've held on to that. Yeah. Let's dive into what does your direct team and your channel team? What do those teams look like? Well, the, the channel team, uh, as you might imagine, is uh, we're up to starting twenty ten with two of us. Today we're fifty five of them, and they're they're broken down between regional teams that have channel executives, channel marketing, partner success managers, and the like that work with partners to help them meet their uh, goals or quotas, because all of our partners have a a goal or a quota. And they're there to help talk to prospects, help guide deals, all the things that that role has historically done in the channel. We've got a very large partner enablement group that enables partners from sales, marketing, technical services, professional services, uh, and they, we do that for all of our Sage Intact partners uh, worldwide. And then the direct team, as you might imagine, is broken up of a number of groups. One is the typical AE, complemented by sales development reps, SDRs. Um, and then with that, you also have uh, people that our customer account managers who are managing the renewals. Our customers renew every year. And so there's a large, um, uh, you know, we've been in business 20 years. So got lots of, you know, tens of thousands of customers. So that becomes a big effort. And uh, of course, our partners do that themselves on uh, on the partner side. And so the the channel team, that 50, would you say 50 plus five, yep. 55, is that global? Well, no, that's in, in North America and every region does America. more, but for Sage Intact, we've launched uh, Sage Intact in five countries now. That partner enablement team uh, uh, does that. And of course, the uh, direct team has a large uh, group of, of sales engineers who are uh, people doing demonstrations and doing use cases and customizations and the like for demos. Um, and we, we use those resources occasionally. We certainly use them very, very heavily when we started the program in the first five years because our partners didn't have that uh, expertise. And yeah, and now uh, almost 11 years in, of course, the, the larger partners in particular are very good at all things intact. Yeah. And then so you have, that's just North America. How many direct sellers do you have in North America? You know that I get asked that all the time and, and A, I don't think about it. It's in the dozens. I mean, so it's a nice size group, but I couldn't tell you if it was 50 or 100. Um and we have, uh, you know, we say publicly we've got about 120 partners in uh, North America. And I am, as uh, you are, greatly influenced by Larry Walsh at Channelnomics. And Larry and I certainly agree on the fact that a smaller channel is a, a better channel. Uh, so we set very high expectations with our 
our uh, prospective partners and our partners. They pay a fee to be a partner. They get lots of value for that, including the use of, of Sage Intact. But with that comes uh, a quota. And, you know, somebody in, a, in the fast growing world that we're in and, and the last three or four quarters, uh, other than the quarter that started the pandemic, have been um, our best quarters. And, you know, if you're not succeeding in this market that we're in, where people are moving to the cloud, um, then you're doing something wrong and we'll help you get it right. But if after two or three years, you're not making progress, then it's uh, probably on you, not us. Yeah. Have, do you know approximately how many channel sellers you have in your in that partner network? So um, when you go look at, at salespeople, it's in the three to 500 range, uh, okay. if not higher, the whole community. And we look when we look at the whole ecosystem, we do look at that. We go and say, um, and I think this is a, a holistic way to do this, Rob. So we go and, and look and really add up partner by partner. So partner A, how many people do you have dedicated to Sage Intact in all mm -hmm. phases? And you go through, um, you know, uh, every one of them, you add them up. And of course, it's in the thousands uh, now. And we think back, we have a monthly partner call and we have hundreds and hundreds, 500s of attendees. And we all remember 10, 10 and three quarters years ago when it was three intact channel employees and five partners. And we, yeah. <laughs> we didn't talk much about business, right? That's quite a force multiplier though, Taylor, yeah. you, know, you know, the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of partner reps out there yeah. promoting Sage Intact. Well, that is the multiplier effect. And that's what, uh, that's what you want to get to uh, every day as you build a channel. And, and I think the, the larger your channel gets, the, the realization that a partner who's going to be uh, only closing a minimum number of deals per year is not going to affect your business um, in any way, uh, shape or form. It's great to get it. We appreciate it. But if you took that time that you spent with five of those and you went to somebody who was doing 70, 100 deals a year and you could help them grow 30% in a year, that time is better spent. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're always happy to have new partners, but we want them to understand that um, in a fast growing market like this, that, that you know, you have to you have to be successful uh, back in the third quarter of, of last year. We had a, a partner in Dallas who specializes in the restaurant vertical. He closed three deals in the quarter during the pandemic in the restaurant vertical. Right. So when somebody says, hey, I can't find something or I'm not having success uh, selling intact, I simply point to someone like that and say, you know, here's a guy in the hardest hit vertical period who closed three deals in a quarter. Yeah. Yeah. That's like selling ice to Eskimos. That's, that's not easy. No. And, and, you know, again, uh, we, we fit, as you know, Rob, between entry-level products like QuickBooks or Zero, and all the way up to products like Workday and, and Oracle Fusion and SAP and the like, we fit in that large middle market. Uh, many of those businesses were, were badly hurt by, uh, COVID, but now we see and, and continue to see the rebound in that vertical as more and more of those customers want to get to the cloud and want to be able to, you know, continue to work from home and as simply as we all do when we log into any uh, true multi-tenant cloud solution. Yeah. Is your business 100% SaaS now, or do you still have some on-prem? No. So we were started in 1999 as one of the first two multi-tenant cloud solutions. So we only have one you know, everybody's on the same instance and knock on wood, that to our, our mind is exactly what the market demands. 
So you gave some interesting points in your in that presentation at Channel Focus around why this hybrid approach ha is so powerful and the benefits from both the direct and the partner side. Can you dive into that a little bit? Yeah, and so so I think uh, you touched on one, which is the multiplier effect partners. We all know that, but but the reality, and we're asked all this uh, asked this all the time, is why don't you go one way or the other, right? Well, today, after you know, 2010, we started with zero. The the direct team was way ahead of us, and you know, after five plus years, we became 50-50, and we've reached that point where that pretty much stays where it is. It goes up and down. So, the reality is, um, hiring, retaining, training uh, direct salespeople uh, to to sell. Uh, Mid-market accounting software is not easy for our direct team. Uh, those people are expensive. You don't know uh, which ones are going to work out until they do or they don't. So we all know that that hiring direct salespeople is uh, a tough a tough thing to do. And then on the channel side, uh, we found um, that there simply aren't enough partners that meet our criteria, um, and that uh, will do a great job with with our. Uh, our product. People don't wake up every day and say, hey, I think I'll become go become an accounting software VAR, right? And so there's a limited number of partners who can sell our products and uh, there's a limited number of, of direct uh, folks that you can hire. So I think you end up with this, this great uh, world where both of these engines are, are full on. We would be half the size today if we didn't have a channel. We'd be half the size today if we didn't have direct. And so I always look at it putting on my Sage hat and my Sage Intact hat that says, boy, uh, the two of these together, regardless of the fact that you occasionally have conflict, is much stronger than than simply having one. And then you couple it uh, in 2017 when we were acquired by Sage, we were going down the road of a IPO um, and had a great offer from Sage that made lots of sense. But one of the pieces that uh, this model also allows you is the fact that our partners are doing all this service work. And so, you know, imagine what it takes to, to do the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of hours of service work. You'd ha we would have, you know, two or 300 more people on our payroll and scheduling, trying to keep them busy and the like. And of course, this is exactly the type of work our partners want. Mm -hmm. I'm curious. So when you embarked on this strategy, um, you had direct sellers already, you had a direct business. Now you have the challenge of building up a channel. One approach is go to the direct sellers and say, hey, let's take some of that direct business and bring it to the channel and, and force that to happen. You're going to start working with channel partners. You're going to bring them into deals. It sounds like you took the, the opposite approach and really you had to make the channel stand up on its own. Is that right? Yes. And, and uh, that includes that uh, while there are leads that are registered to direct that a partner asks for because of a relationship, partners are responsible for generating their own leads and opportunities. And so we spend a tremendous amount of time um, and money, marketing programs, channel marketing programs. You know, there's a channel marketing manager in each region helping our partners generate opportunities. So we felt like that was the, the one plus one uh, equals two, simply taking leads and, and opportunities that we had generated um, and it cost a significant amount of money. We were very cognizant at that point of, of CAC, customer acquisition cost and the like. And so that would just, uh, you know, when you added that to the margin and any discounts, uh, you know, that was going to become prohibitive. So 
I think, and, and having been a, a VAR in a former life um, where the majority of the deals that I closed came from my marketing efforts, it gives you a chance as a partner to sell yourself first, sell the value of your business, your expertise, your vertical industry, and then add the product to it. So when we look at our top partners, they're selling their firm um, and their expertise. They're mostly exclusive to Intact, but they're selling their long history, their expertise, their uh, referenceable customers, their install base and the like. And and that's what uh, that's what prospects want to see and hear. Yeah. I want to talk about partner success, both from a sales perspective and then from a delivery professional services perspective. On the sales side, you know, when you hire a direct seller, it takes time to ramp them up, but they, they're in the cocoon of the family and they've got a lot of resources to lean on to, to get that, win that first deal. It can be a lot more challenging ramping up a new partner and their sales reps. How did you tackle that, especially early on? And even now, you know, how do you, how do you get a new partner seller successful in drumming up their own opportunity and turning it into a deal? So, Rob, I think one of the things that that people don't hear enough of is regardless of what products that you sell, hiring and making a new partner sales rep successful is the toughest job in the channel, period. It's Mm -hmm. the hardest job to find somebody. They all want six figures. They all want uh, none of them want a prospect. They want you to go bring them almost completed uh, opportunities and, you know, have somebody else demo and they come in and and use the paperwork. Right. Um, Yeah. uh, Thankfully, uh, one of the things that I did when we started the channel team is, uh, oh, I don't know, it used to be 90%, it's probably 60%, but uh, it's a very large number of the people in the channel team are former partners. Right. So these are people that have had experience with whether it's Great Plains or Microsoft, SAP, Sage, whoever, selling and representing accounting software. So we have a tremendous amount of knowledge uh, on our team. And um, the, the team has a great longevity after uh, almost 11 years, uh, 55 people today. We've lost uh, six people total during those um, 11 years and two plus two retirees. So, um, you know, that shows the the longevity. But I think what we did is just looked at it as ex-partners and say, well, how would you do it? So first it starts with great product knowledge. And so um, as, as salespeople, we want uh, the pro- partner salesperson to know and understand the product. Um, we complemented that with the sales engineering resources from our direct team. Everybody in a sales role at Sage and Intact goes through Barry Ryan selling through curiosity. Um, and so that was something we made available. Um, then we created a demo champion program where we taught people how to demonstrate the product and uh, they had to pass um, a test. Then we hired a, a professional sales uh, trainer whose job it is to further that demo champion program and to coach um, sellers from uh, partners to be more successful. Um, we have lots of awards around uh, successful salespeople. We rank their efficiency um, as well. And so I think what, what you get to is a point um, where you layer um, um, uh, assets one after another until you get to the point where um, a new salesperson, A, is going to be overwhelmed, but he'll have all or she will have all the resources we have an office hours program and office hours could be marketing office hours, product office hours, but there's also a sales office hours so that this community of sellers can get together and share 
share wisdom and experiences and, and uh, hopefully get better as a group. Uh, we also, uh, for many years, and it's morphed a little bit um, since the SAGE acquisition, but it's it's no different than it was. It has a different name. We started uh, probably in 2012 or 2013 with a, a, a partner business building conference. And the idea behind that, Rob, was to have our best partners teach the other partners what they were doing and how it was working. Um, and today that's called SAGE Partner Summit, but the, it's the same idea. But one of the things that came out of that was – um, our best partners share with all their partners a blank prospect pro- or yeah prospect proposal. They uh, share a statement of work, uh, you know, blank, so that so if somebody who's uh, selling, you know, maybe over six or eight, ten years, sold a thousand uh, Sage Intact, um, their proposal looks better than anybody's who would be coming in new. Even or even two or three years to it. So, yeah, hey, you're a new partner, and I give you a proposal that is uh, killer, right? I've just made your life a lot easier, and I've given you a lot better chance to win. And because our partners don't compete with each other, and look, they're always given last year's version, right? I mean, if you're smart, you're iterating your proposals on a regular basis. Certainly in COVID, the proposal that our top partners is giving is completely different than two years ago. But this willingness to share across the ecosystem to uh, lift all boats, uh, I think, is is a highlight of that. And again, uh, we want everybody to be successful um, and, and having a better proposal or a better statement of work or any other asset is one way to do it. It's amazing that the partners are willing to share that that level of detail. You said because they don't compete with each other, do they have any type of exclusivity or is, or is it more because of the deal registration? It's because of the deal registration. Yeah. So that way they can they know if they source an opportunity, you're not going to allow another partner to come in and, and start working it. Yeah. And so one partner, you know, one deal, one partner. Yeah. How about on the professional services side? So you you gave a lot of detail on how you ramp up a sales partner. How do you ramp up a new delivery partner for the professional services? Because you said partners are doing the vast bulk of the professional services work. But how do you know that they're going to be successful in those first two, three, you know, service engagements? Well, so I think there's a couple things there. One is, is that they don't go into the the uh, services arena with direct deals until they get to 15 or 20 deals on their own on their own and then have the capacity to go add that work and have it not have that work interfere with their own uh, sales and implementation efforts right uh, we don't want them to be distracted by um, that fact but i look i think when you when you jump into partner enablement and we were not slow to uh, uh, invest heavily in it but um, I, I think um, you never realize how heavy, heavy is in partner enablement, right? Today, 22 or 24 people on that team. And so um, getting, a, getting an implementer or a support person or a customer account manager on a partner's team to a level of, of excellence and, and self-sufficiency is just like that salesperson, right? And so you know, it starts with product knowledge. Then it starts mm-hmm. with project management skills. Many of them come to come to a partner with that. Um, then it comes to these office hours to understand um, the projects. We give every new partner uh, 24 hours of, of free assistance as they go through their first deal so that, again, here's a template for estimating how long uh, this implementation should be. Here's the configuration gotchas, all those things so that every customer becomes referenceable. 
we also hold back, and no surprise here, we hold back our most complicated and sophisticated solutions, modules, if you will, until the partners reach that 15 or 20 deal minimum. So we, we, we know as, as channel people that when a partner goes in their first deal is the most sophisticated deal you can ever imagine with a company three times the average size, it's not going to end well. And so we had a few of those in the early days and we said, we just can't do this, but we might go uh, partner that uh, partner that has that opportunity with another partner, again, because they're not competing to use that other partner's services or in some case, our own services. We do have a professional, we do have a professional services team that's quite large. It's just not um, the size it would be if, if the channel wasn't doing. So I think when, when, when we talk about partners, and, and look, this is an important distinction. When you talk about partner success and, and you look at the things that make partners successful, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the, the swim lanes metaphor, but that's what they are. So there's, there's a, a, a track, if you will, for a salesperson, new or existing. There's a track for a partner, a new employee, you know, existing partner, new employee uh, for uh, implementation skills. There's uh, same for marketing people. There's same for customer account managers. Uh, when you're doing a renewal every year, the customer wants to uh, have it be a lot more than yours and my insurance companies. So when they renew with you and me, what do they do? They send us a bill that's a lot higher than last year. They don't add any value. They don't explain why it's higher. They don't explain how you or I could have made that increase less. They just send you a bill with the renewal. Well, that's not the right way to go uh, renew a customer. And so, you know, customer account manager has to have a constant, uh, and by constant, I mean five, six times a year, outreach to a customer to make sure things are going well and clearly have a relationship where they might take an inbound email or, or, uh, or call. But all that has to be taught. And uh, you know, one of the things that came with this business building conference, and I had um, taken this idea, uh, you know, the best ideas are always ones that are, are plagiarized. Um, this came back from my days as a Great Plains partner when they had business building conference. What you find in this arena is how badly partners want to help other partners and how they want to share their knowledge. And you or I as, as channel leaders could get up and say exactly the same thing that a, a partner would, the exact same words. We could read it from a script and partners would rate another partner's performance and knowledge and value substantially higher than if you or I did it. And yeah, that's right. They get tired of hearing from us, I yeah, think. Yeah. They, they don't want to hear, you know, what do you know? You're not, you know, you're, you're not in, you're not in doing my job. I want to hear from somebody that's, that's doing it. Hey, how are they renewing all their customers earlier or, or whatnot? So, yeah. Yeah. Well, clearly you guys are doing a ton of partner enablement, sales enablement, technical enablement, and that's a, a key factor for your success. Well, I think, again, it's, it's one of those ones when we started, we all did it. The, the early team that was there, we were six or eight people in the first couple of years. We all had experience and we all divvied it up. Um, but what we find now is that people do, that do it over and over again are much better than we, were, we ever were. Um, their knowledge, they're experts in it. They go and study uh, other channels of how they do it. But I think the, the learning here is, is that Partner enablement is always underinvested and underestimated, and it's probably the biggest key to success. Yeah. All right. Well, let's dive into everybody's favorite topic, conflict. Sure. 
you got into this in your presentation. So how do you deal with that inevitable channel conflict? Well, lead registration, deal registration goes, oh, to 95, 96, 97% of, of solving uh, channel conflict. And, you know, it, it comes up. Somebody that partners registered decides that they want to work with uh, the direct team. Um, somebody that a partner meets is registered as a direct lead. And so we have processes, we have a rules of engagement uh, that we follow that, that um, gives us a blueprint for uh, how to do this. But at the end of the day, um, the prospect is always right. The prospect doesn't want to see sausage made in front of them. They just want to get on with what they want to do and evaluate a solution. So lots of it is simply picking up the phone and having a, con a conversation with the prospect and or the partners and or uh, the direct rep. Um, we have ways to ensure that both people, if there's still conflict that's that's not easily decided, that in some cases, both entities get paid. So that that certainly helps. But you can't get rid of all conflict. You always read that if you have zero conflict, then you're not being aggressive enough in the marketplace, right? Because there should be some natural collision. And we've looked at, can you go segment by size? Can you go segment by vertical? Can you go segment by geo? And all those things just fall down for all the simple reasons that we don't have enough partners in a vertical or there's not enough direct reps in a vertical. Partners sell all over the country. Of, of the 10 largest deals in, in intact history, probably five or six of them are, are partner deals. So I think my, my quote, again, plagiarizing is, you know, Churchill said that democracy is the worst system of government except all of those that have been already tried. And a hybrid channel is the best channel strategy or the worst channel strategy other than all the others that have been tried, right? So you, you just deal with the conflict and, and you don't, and, and this is hard, and it's hard on both the partner side, and it's hard on uh, direct rep side to try to not get emotional about it. Did you Do you have some neutral arbitrator when there's conflict, or is it more the customer? Yeah, and so, uh, you know, when, when it gets to that level, our chief revenue officer does do that. And so that's fine. He's uh, very even-handed. And again, many times it stops and starts with... with uh, someone at a senior level simply calling the prospect and explaining the situation and and understanding you know relationships and the like at the end of the day we want a new happy customer that's referenceable for either channel and you know to put aside the the infighting to say who's who's our real competition well our competition is people who sell competing products not ourselves and this is a place where i think um, lots of people building hybrid channels really struggle, which is there is manual intervention and there's there's no way to do it. I mean, hey, you know, we we uh, we talked about using the possession arrow from the NBA, right? But then I tell you as a prospect, hey, uh, uh, Rob, you got to go work with one or the other. And you go, well, I don't want to do that. And so, you know, things, even things like you think just flip a coin or possession arrow would work and, and they don't. So what what's the possession arrow? You know, you know, in the NBA, when the ball goes out of bounds or the person yeah, doesn't know whose ball it is, you know, you get it this time, I get it the next time, that kind of thing. I think one of the, the pieces that we've learned again is, is that this system is not perfect, but it's led to this meteoric growth that we wouldn't have otherwise. I'd send a note to, uh, you may know 
Byron Dieter at, at Bessemer, one of the top VCs, he, he uh, releases his cloud survey every year. And he had a quote uh, that he retweeted or, or somebody had tweeted at him that was, um, you know, that the SaaS world is a, uh, a direct only business. And I said, well, hey, here's us. And, and his comment back was, um, interestingly enough, that there are very few substantial channel businesses in the SaaS world. And some of that's due to SaaS self-subscription. Um, you and I have had this discussion uh, numerous times, but channels are only valuable when solutions are complex and the sale of that solution is complex, right? Otherwise, you'd go to a marketplace and you would just you, you would just buy it. And so we're in a world where when people are, are moving off uh, a mid-market solution or off an entry-level solution, buying uh, their next uh, financial solution is is not simple. It's not something um, that people typically can go do without some assistance from their CPA firm, from a partner or whatnot. And much of the, the SaaS marketplace has been a, about um, the ease of self-subscription. So it was just interesting to see his comment that there aren't a lot of large channels. And, and when you talk to guests in the future, I'd be curious of how many might be 70 or 80% direct and the rest channel uh, versus us being 50-50. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I remember uh, as SaaS started gaining popularity, there was this, the people forecasting, predicting that that was kind of going to be the end of the channel. But as long as you have a complex sale and a complex uh, implementation, how can you get by without the channel? I would wonder. Yeah. Uh, we certainly don't see um, any way to do that. No. From the professional services side, you mentioned that partners implement 80% or more of the of the deals, the direct deals. Do you have any conflict like partner professional services versus your own? Does that because a lot of us face that challenge? Well, I think I think we have somebody whose job it is to work with their direct counterparts to determine A, if a partner is going to go implement that deal, and if so, which partner and which partners are eligible to do it. We always make sure that our professional services team is maxed out uh, busy unless there's a vertical issue or, or a geographic desire to have a partner in that. Um, that's been one of the ones that I think has worked very, very well. And, and our partners have a very high uh, net promoter score from being successful. And again, if you imagine that you're doing literally 20s and 30s of these every quarter for some of our top partners, you, you get very, very good at, uh, at implementing the product. Yeah. So as long as your 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 guys are off the bench, professional services is fully occupied. They're they're more than happy to say, "Hey, on this deal, we got to bring in this partner. Yeah. We need them." And again, uh, as more and more people understand that, almost regardless of the the channel that we're in, every channel is verticalizing. Right? Uh, we spoke about this at lunch about the verticals that you're in, and so you know we have a partner who specializes in large faith based. Uh, organizations. And so if a direct rep had sold one, you would want that partner to implement it because they know the most about um, large faith-based organizations. Or it could be, you know, a, a software company or, or a, a, a project-based business that, that a partner has that experience on. So... Yeah, that vertical play. That's, that's what we say with our partners. They're, they're the vertical to our horizontal platform. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. How long did it take you, Taylor, to get to that 50% level that you're at now or 50% of your business's channel? You know, it was about, uh, we started again in 2010. 2010. Uh, we got to that point in about 2015. 
Um, okay. I, I like to joke that um, my counterpart was driving a 911 and I was on a Ducati. And so uh, <laughs> at, at some point, the top speed equaled, uh, the, you know, was able to catch up with uh, how far the direct was, uh, group was ahead of us. And okay. Uh, so about five years. Yeah. Okay. Well, that now I've got a now I've got a target. So I, you know, in my role at OutSystems, if I want to get to fifty percent, I've been there not even two years yet. So I got to tell my boss I've got three more years to get to fifty percent to to meet the best of the best, like Taylor. Well, and here here's the thing. And look, uh, pick a number with this, right? So Sage bought Intact for almost a ten x multiple of revenue. Today we see people that are in true SaaS businesses, their multiples are 15, 20, 30 X. And I'm talking about publicly traded companies. So the reality is, as as people listen to this podcast, as your boss, and you have this discussion, every dollar the channel brings in that's incremental to what the direct team would have done is worth $10, $15, $20, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's what our board saw and what they, um, and, you know, we had very frequent board meetings and obviously the review of the business was always uh, front and center, but clearly the channel was part of that because it was a nascent effort. But I think they understood that, again, if we got to a million dollars of channel revenue, 10 million, $50 million, $100 million of channel revenue, that when you look at what the multiplier is of that, that's a huge reason that you make that investment uh, in the channel and in hybrid channels uh, in particular. Yeah. Can I touch a minute on your partner program? I know that you had an opportunity years back to take a clean slate and you put a lot of thought into the program that you designed and you kept it super simple, right? Because you, you've you been on the other end of complex programs and you just wanted to, to make it easy. Can you share a little bit about that from like, like a partner? Is it all resell? Like you do it all on their paper and you just apply a resell discount or do you pay any form of commissions or anything like that? So before I get right to that question, I think the the first thing is you have to understand our philosophy. Our philosophy is real simple. If our partners are successful, that means from a sales perspective, from an implementation perspective and a happy customer perspective, then they're going to make a lot of money and we'll do fine, right? And so um, the, the next part of that philosophy is partners want three things. They want a great product to sell. They want an economic uh, uh, margin that works, an economic program that works for them. And then they want the support to help build their business. That effectively is what we would call um, the partner program, right? Those are the, the swim lanes, the assistance, the marketing programs, anything you do, The actually working with a channel executive, those are all the things that are there. Then they want to be left alone. Because everybody said, I want my life back. I don't want to work, you know, 80 hours a week at this. So um, in early 2010, as I was uh, speaking with the folks at Intact, I made a huge effort to go out to people that I'd known in my former life as a partner in this uh, marketplace, uh, people who I hoped would become our partners. And I asked a simple question. So Rob, what do you hate about being an SAP partner, a Great Plains partner, Microsoft, Sage partner, on and on? And what they told us was a number of things. Um, one, that they wanted to own the customer. So they wanted the deals to be on their paper. They wanted to own the renewal. They wanted to own the first line of support. They wanted to be uh, compensated for the life of the customer that they were taking care of. Um, they wanted a smaller elite and exclusive channel. They didn't want to... Uh, to have uh, channel conflicts. So that's where the deal registration came in. 
um, and and on and on of some of these fundamentals that you know they wanted to have fun again. We we made that a big part of it. They wanted to be part of something that was different than the channel programs that they'd had that they'd been part of before, and 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 in most cases continue on because they have a legacy product that was a you know a single tenant hosted or uh, way back in the day, obviously a server based uh, on prem uh, product. So what we were trying to do is create a a multi-tenant channel, you know, the framework for somebody that was going to sell a multi-tenant uh, cloud product um, in a new world where the margins were different, the number of partners that you would have would be different. Um, and so from this blank sheet of paper, um, A, we tried to put in only things, the things that were necessary for uh, success. Now, in lots of those areas, of course, we offer lots more marketing assistance than we did at day one. But the overriding uh, philosophy is not any different, and the way you go uh, consume those uh, assets isn't any different. So, the, again, the idea was that I think uh, partners really are focused on on those three things: great product, a great economic model, and then the support that they need to to be successful uh, building their business. Uh, uh, I always joke that you know the old mutual fund saying. Uh, Future uh, past performance is not a uh, indicative of future performance, but this is one of those stories that you know so good that uh, we'd had to make it up. We've got a partner in Houston, Texas, Marcus Wagner, at a company called Act Two. He started about ten years ago now, maybe nine and three quarters, with four people. He didn't uh, never heard of the resale model, if you will. He was a some accounting uh, software, accounting firm refugees that were doing outsourced accounting. And today his firm is uh, well over 100 people exclusively focused on intact. And, you know, that was the success he had because um, he had a great product. Economic model was one that uh, by building the annuity was very preferential for our partners. And then we gave them all of the uh, support he needed. And I think one of the things I always point out that's different about what we've done, um, and, and we talked about this a little at lunch, is so Marcus is in Houston, Texas. So we see as his partner having this huge success and he's growing from four people to 10 to 20 to 40. Well, in the old days, the natural channel chief reaction would be, hey, I need to get down to Houston. Something big is happening there. I need to go recruit three, five, 10 more partners, right? And so if we'd done that, what would Marcus have done? He said, crap, I'm going to go look for other products. I'm going to go, I'm going to go uh, hedge my bets here. Instead, we said, hey, here's somebody that's unique. And we did not go look for other partners. We have other partners there eventually, but we didn't go and say it was something about Houston. It wasn't anything about Houston. It was everything about Marcus Wagner. and Act About Ford. that partner. Exactly. Yeah. So back to the kind of program structure, you know, we've seen many programs and I've been involved with them on, on either end where they're very complex and your resale discount depends on what market you're selling into, what value add you bring. There's documentation, then, then you may get X percent on the sale, but then on the, the renewal of the subscription, you get, you know, a tenth of that. Have you taken away all of that and just said, hey, there's the set one price, one discount you get for everything? Absolutely. Partners hate that stuff. We got rid of all the metals, the platinum, gold, silver levels, you know, where your new sale uh, depends on on how much you sell in a year and your add-ons depends on something else and your uh, renewals depends on something else where nobody can explain it. 
and it's too complex. So every partner gets the same margin regardless of their level. The difference is we deauthorize 10 to 20% of our partners every year who are not making the minimum uh, number of deals. So we say, hey, here's a great economic model. You got a great product. We're going to do everything we can to support you. So let's get out there and win together. And what you don't want to do is to get to a bottom heavy channel where the bottom in terms of numbers, 30, 40, 50% of the partners are are only producing 5% of the sales and taking up not only are they not producing, but we all know that they take a disproportionate amount of effort because they're less successful at selling. So they need more co-sell. They're less successful at marketing and on and on. So what we, we tried to do with a simple program was, again, have very high expectations, um, ask our partners to be all in, to meet us halfway. And then, you know, the mantra of whatever it takes to make our partners successful is what we'll do. Of course, of course within reason, but there, there's nothing that we won't do to try to help make a partner successful. Yeah. Well, that, that's fantastic. One last question to wrap it up, because I know we're going long here. A lot of us drool when we hear of companies that have a 100% channel. It just sounds like nirvana. Yep. If you could start from scratch, you're, the, you're on the board, you're like in all the seats, and you could say, coming out of the gate, I'm going to be 100% channel. Would you take that? Or would you say, no, I've, I think this hybrid approach is the best path? Well, I, I think the answer is different depending on perhaps the product and the industry. So the first thing that you really have to do is look at, and, and this is the analytical part of my brain, you have to go look at the total uh, addressable market for that industry. You have to look at uh, how long it takes to uh, actually close a deal and what resources are needed there. And uh, then look at what the partner uh, population is. And I think you'd come to the same conclusion that we've come to at Sage Intact, which is there's not enough of, of direct or not enough of partners. I think there are some places where there are enough of those partners. But the other thing that's uh, very interesting about partner behavior is, is that as partners grow and they get significantly larger, they become more risk adverse. And so they don't want to jeopardize what's there. The law of big numbers comes in and partners that were doubling then go to 50% growth and 20% growth and then 10% growth. And so it becomes harder and harder to continue to count on a smaller group. Uh, we focus tons of our effort on the next generation of of up-and-coming partners um, who will be the the very large partners uh, of today. So I think one of the things that we've seen historically in, in lots of uh, partners, and I don't like the term lifestyle partners, but when partners have hundreds of customers and they have a large annuity, their desire to go after every last deal is not as much as that partner that, that is brand new. And so that's really hard to uh, handle. And I think also in the move to the cloud, you probably want to cover all your bases and have as many sales resources as you can. And and this is one of the things that I think is is funny that lots of direct sales forces haven't also added channels. Yes, if you have a marketplace type product, it probably doesn't make sense, but we both have hybrid channels and we know how strong they can be and, and what extra growth you get from that. So, yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Taylor, thank you for sharing. I mean, you got so much knowledge and I could go on for another hour because I've got so many other questions I'd love to ask you, which means we'll just have to have you back on the show again. Well, I thanks. And, and Rob, uh, to me, I stand like you do on the shoulders of giants that came before us that were willing to answer what we thought were dumb questions to have 
general uh, channel conversations that they probably thought were repetitive that we looked at, uh, whether at a channel focus event or others where we thought, man, this is the best thing I can ever do. I can't, I wish I could tape this. And of course now it's easy with a phone. So I, I think um, what your show has, has proven to me is, is that there are lots of people who believe in the value of the channel, whether it's hybrid or not, who want to help uh, people that may be starting out, people that have less experience. I listen to them all because um, there's always something, again, to take from a different type of channel, a different uh, channel program or the like. So uh, congratulations to uh, Channel Journeys for having done as well as you've done. Well, thank you. So, Taylor, have a great day. Thanks again. And I'll see you at Channel Focus. Great. Even virtually. Even virtually, yes. All right. Have a good one. Thank you. All right, guys, there we go. That was a lot of fun. I really could have just continued for another hour with Taylor. Such a great channel story. And he really gives a compelling argument why having two distinct channels, one direct and one indirect, makes so much sense. It's really interesting how he's put that together and what he's been able to accomplish in driving 50% of the revenue through the channel. Really awesome. And a lot of great tips that he provides on how to make it work. So I really enjoyed that conversation. Thanks, Taylor. Hope you all enjoyed it as well. You can find show notes from today's episode at channeljourneys.com backslash cj69 and be sure to subscribe while you're there and if you are enjoying the podcast again please leave a rating and review on apple podcast or wherever you're listening just to help continue driving the audience and share the podcast with others who you think might find this interesting I am gearing up for another podcast sprint. I'll try not to let another month go by before the next one. I've got a lot of great guests coming your way. And the next episode is number 70. I don't know. It feels like a milestone. I might just have to do that one on my own, maybe give some thoughts of of where we're at so far this year. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time. Until then, have an awesome channel journey. Thanks for listening to Channel Journeys. For show notes and other Channel Journey podcasts, visit channeljourneys.com. If you liked today's show, please forward it to your channel friends and be sure to tune in for Rob's next channel adventure.